0: There was a young minister, it was his first time preaching, and he was really excited to be able to get up in front of the congregation. But as he got ready to preach that first night, he looked out and he saw this huge crowd of people, and he thought to himself, now, how can I preach in front of these people? So he began his sermon, and he said, behold, I come, and he leaned in on the pulpit, but he froze, and he couldn't go any further. So he stopped, and he stepped back just a little bit, and gathered himself, and he behold, I come. And again, he froze up. The third time when he went to do it, he leaned into the pulpit just a little too hard and fell forward into the front row of the, pu- of the church. And of course, as he fell forward, he began to apologize. And the lady in the front row said, it's all right. You warned me three times. I should have seen it coming. <laughs> I just wanted to share that I am so glad to see people in the front row. Uh, What a blessing to have folks up here this morning. And uh, this is a special service for us. Not only is this the... Last Sunday before Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, the coming of our Messiah, but it's also a time where we're going to celebrate baptism a little bit later in the service, and it is a blessing to be able to share that with you today. I want to share with you today just a little bit from the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. It is the Christmas story that most of us are familiar with. Now, as I share that with you this morning, I will tell you that normally you see me read from the New International Version, but there is one. One story that I learned from the King James Version when I was a kid. And it is the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. Uh, it's actually verses 1 through 20, but we're going to look today just at verses 8 through 20. I encourage you, go home and read verses 1 through 7 on your own later on. But today we're going to read from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And again, this is from the King James Version. This is what it says. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary, and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Let's pray, Father, as we have read that passage today, Lord, I pray that you would apply it to our hearts and help us to realize how this meets us now, even though 2,000 years have passed since it was recorded. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let me begin by asking the question, where do you sense God's presence? When you need to draw close to God, where do you go? For me, I can think of specifically a place where I gave my heart to Christ many, many years ago. I was at a youth camp in Roanoke, Virginia. It's right off Interstate 81, right off the the Hollins exit. Uh, It's the Church of God camp. You can see it from the highway. And every time I go past it with my kids, I have to tell them about my salvation experience. That was the place where I first experienced God in my heart. For me, The old stone church that is on the campus of Southern Wesleyan University is a place where I think of the presence of God. Not only did I get the opportunity to sit through many spiritual emphasis week sermons where there would be ministers who would come and the Holy Spirit would move and work in the life of the student body, but it was actually in that place that me and my wife got engaged at the altar. We actually got engaged there. We were supposed to write each other poems. I am still waiting for my wife's poem. She seemed to have forgotten that day, but I wrote a poem that I'm not going to share with you this morning. Lately, I've been able to find that place of intimacy with God at the Potter's Place, which is an area that's close to Southern Wesleyan's campus, a great place to just go and to pray and to be able to worship. Where is the place that you experience the presence of God most intimately? You know, all throughout Judeo-Christian history, we see people who identified certain places where they would most intimately experience God's presence. They built altars or stone memorials to remind themselves of God's presence and his power. And when the Jewish people began to live as God's chosen people, they even built a temple where they could go and meet with God. This temple was broken down into different sections. There were certain areas where everybody could go. It was known as a Gentile court. And the goal was for all of those who lived among the Israelites to be able to come and to worship and to experience God's presence. So they did. That was the Gentile court. Then there was a Jewish court where only the Jews could go. But there was one other section that nobody could go except the high priest. And only one time per year could he do it. That place was called the Holy of Holies. This Holy of Holies was a place that was separated primarily by a veil or a curtain. And on that one particular day, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would experience the presence of God in a very intimate way. Certainly, there would be other places where God would show up. There would be times when God would appear outside of this Holy of Holies in the fiery furnace in the belly of a whale, in a lion's den, at a burning bush. But those experiences seem almost unusual to the people of God. For the most part, God and mankind were separated again by a veil, a curtain that divided them. It wasn't that God didn't want to dwell among his people, but God hated the sin that lived within his people. God was not content to leave that veil in place, though. So in sending Jesus Christ, Jesus tore open the veil. God chose to dwell among men and forever offer redemption to mankind. Today, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Luke's account of Jesus' birth shows us that the love of God has come near in Christ. He has come here in Christ. And that here can be a variety of places. Let's look at four places found in the gospel that we've read. First of all, the love of Christ is revealed in our workplaces. The amazing news of the birth of a Savior is not reserved for the palace, but rather for a field. Consider who these people were as they first hear of the Messiah's birth. These were shepherds, not really social outcasts as is sometimes uh, believed, but neither were they the social elite. These were those individuals that they spent most of their time with sheep. They spent most of their time not really with the general public. And it's not because they were hated, but they had a job to do. And if you're a shepherd, you can't just decide, you know, I'm going to take tomorrow off. You have sheep that need to be cared for, and therefore you have a job to do. The sheep were not necessarily social outcasts, but they weren't really the elite either. In fact, in terms of both power and privilege, they were probably near the bottom of the social ladder. Yet it was to a group of shepherds in their workplace, out in the field, that Luke records the initial announcement of the Savior's birth. What had been mundane became majestic. What had been boring became beautiful. Luke even tells us that after encountering Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, that the shepherds returned, glorifying God. In other words, they went back to the same place they were, to their workplace, praising the Lord because of what they had seen. They went back to their workplace, the fields, only now it was a different kind of workplace, a different kind of environment. It wasn't that the fields actually changed, but rather the way they viewed the fields, their workplace, everything around them seemed to take on new life and meaning. They couldn't just go back to work and expect it to be the same business as usual. The world had changed for them because they had experienced the Messiah. This week, many of you will return to your workplaces. Others will take the next week or so off, and then you'll go back to work or to school. Let me first ask, do you expect God to show up in your workplace? Those shepherds were simply minding their own business. They didn't wake up that morning and think to themselves, today is the day that the angel will appear in front of us. And this is going to be the most spectacular day we've ever experienced. It's not as if they planned this to take place. This was a normal, ordinary day. But this would become the day that they would experience the Messiah. Do you expect God to show up in your workplace? I'm going to tell you, God desires to show up in your workplace. God desires to be there in the decisions you make and the, the, the things that you say. God desires to be there with you in your workplace. The follow up question is important too, though. Now that God's love has been revealed to you through Jesus Christ, how will your workplace be different when you return? Does your workplace change because you have the love of Jesus Christ in your life? I'm not talking about brighter bulbs. I'm not talking about better decorations. I'm talking about your perspective and your attitude regarding work. The love of Christ ought to redefine your workplace. The second place that we see the love of Christ is in the home. We actually see it here as a manger It has become commonplace to believe that Mary and Joseph were somehow shoved off to some barn, that some heartless innkeeper didn't want to displace anybody, make anyone else uncomfortable, so instead of squeezing a pregnant woman and her husband into a hotel, he just stuck them out in the barn. More likely is that Mary and Joseph had sought lodging not at a hotel but rather at a family's home. See, the whole reason they were going to Bethlehem was to be registered, to be counted. There was a census that was taken. And the reason they had to go to Bethlehem was because this was where Joseph's family was actually from. He was of the house and the lineage of David, and he was to go to Bethlehem. That means that it is likely that there was family living in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not a large city. It was a very small city, and as a small city, it is unlikely that there was an inn, so to speak. So more than likely, what happened was Joseph knocked on the door of his relatives. I will tell you, there was probably some poor planning. They probably didn't think through where we're going to stay when we get there. But for whatever reason, they get there and nobody has room for them. By the way, the term that is translated as inn in Luke chapter 22, verse 11, is also translated as guest room. There was no room for them, not just in the inn, but in the guest room. In an ancient Near East home, the family was separated from the animals, not by putting them in another building, but rather by putting them on a separate level, typically in the home. It seems that the house where Mary and Joseph slept was already full with family. And Mary and Joseph received the lowest accommodation because it was all that was left. The point is not that there was a heartless innkeeper or an insensitive family member. It is that the home was overcrowded. Regardless, this is not a conventional birth. It's very lack of convention is what makes a sign for the shepherds. Perhaps it remains a sign for us. The unconventional king is still coming to unconventional homes. Have you ever thought about what the perfect home looks like? Do you have a dream house? Probably not. I can remember when our church in Pennsylvania first hired a youth pastor. We were so excited we hired an individual, his name is Heath Mulliken. Uh, many of you know him. He is a pastor here in the area. He and I have been good friends since college, and he came and was my youth pastor for about a year. I'm very grateful for our time. The time came for him to come, and we were so excited about him coming, but we didn't have a parsonage, so we didn't really know where to put him, so what do you do? Heath. Why don't you and your family come and live at our house? Now, back then, we only had, it was me, Linda, Andrew, and Alyssa. So there's only four of us at the time. Michael wasn't yet born. We had a four-bedroom house. There's plenty of room to be able to get everybody in. One bathroom, that's the other downside to it. But, uh, so Heath comes with his wife, his three children, and his sister-in-law our house became overcrowded very, very quickly. In fact, I don't understand. We told them they could stay as long as they want. In about a month, they found a place to live. I'm not exactly sure why. The point was, it was overcrowded, but in the midst of all the overcrowding, God was still there. God found ways to show up in an unconventional home. An overcrowded house also became the birthplace of a king. All the faults and failures of your home, its location, its atmosphere, its debt, its stress, they do not exclude it from being the home of a king. In fact, I would suggest that God desperately desires to be actively present in your home. It breaks my heart to see so many families that are in crisis today. And for every family that we know is struggling, there are likely more that nobody knows anything about. Husbands and wives are so alienated from one another. They've been selfish. They've betrayed each other. They've simply grown complacent. The marriage has become something less than what both the husband and wife dreamed. Well, regardless of where your home or your marriage is today, I want you to know that God desires to enter your household. And although it may seem impossible, I believe that God can bring healing and forgiveness and restoration and hope back to the home. Maybe it won't all take place in a single day, but through Jesus Christ and his love, Anything is possible. Will you allow God and his love to enter your home? The third thing that we see is in the story of Christ, the love of God is in the world. Now that's such a general statement, but I want you to think about this. The shepherds left seeing the newly born child and they proclaimed seemingly to anyone who would listen to them. Why? Because the angels had painted a massive vision for them. They connected the dots. This was more than just a baby. They proclaimed peace on earth, not just in the hearts and minds of the people. They proclaimed peace, a peace that, was earlier tied to a universal and eternal reign. This was the tearing of the veil. Remember that veil that separated mankind from God? As Jesus came down, he said, I will make my dwelling among men. He tore the veil, making it possible for us to enter into the presence of a holy God, not in conflict, but in peace. The testimony of the shepherds resulted in amazement of their many hearers. It was not Caesar who would bring peace. It was God in the birth of Jesus Christ. The fields would take on new meaning in the birth of Jesus. The home where Jesus was born forces our homes to take on new meaning. And the angel's words... Merely expand the truth that the presence of God's love in this world knows no boundaries. Paul captured the longing for the presence of God across the world. In Romans 8, he said that creation itself longs for redemption. The message of redemption and peace knows no boundary. I wonder, how does your view of the world change? as you realize how much God longs to redeem that world. I know, peace in our world seems almost like a joke. Whether it's terrorism in the United States or senseless murder across the world, peace seems impossible. But imagine a world that is genuinely at peace with God wouldn't that also lead to a world that is at peace with one another? Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he has come for us. The last part of this is the love of God ought to also be revealed in our hearts. There's one more place as we look here, In this heart, this human heart is a place that Mary somewhat understood. Luke tells us that Mary, unlike the shepherds, was quiet, and she pondered all these things in her heart. She molded the events over, turning them over and over again in her mind, mixing them together, shaping the narrative of her life. You see, this reference to the heart is much more than the organ that pumps our blood throughout the body. The Jewish people saw the heart as the source from which every emotion and thought flowed. I know, it's really just an organ that pumps blood, but to them it was so much more. It was symbolically the source of a person's being. Well, how does it change us when we genuinely take God's love story, pondering these things in our heart. I read a story this week that illustrates this. Imagine for a moment that you are out on a hike on a beautiful day, but it's beginning to get warm and you're beginning to get thirsty and you hear water running. And you think to yourself, there must be some sort of creek or some sort of riverbed ahead. So as you continue to walk, you find this creek but to your disappointment, you also find that it's filthy. Apparently someone has been there and they have left all kinds of junk in the creek. There's trash looking at the cans and stuff that are there, looking at the the little layer of silt that is floating on top. You think to yourself, who would do such a thing? While you're not going to be able to satisfy your thirst, you decide I'm going to do something about this. This is a beautiful place, and if it were cleaned up, it could look really nice. So you begin the process of cleaning up the creek. You begin to take things out, and it takes a couple hours before you can even notice that you're making a difference. After a couple more hours of cleaning, it's starting to look really good, and you lean back, and you think to yourself, if I'm going to make this place really look nice, I'm going to have to come back again. Maybe tomorrow, maybe even the next day but I'll get this place looking nice. So you go home. You come back the next day and you're filled with nothing but disappointment. It appears that after you left, someone went back through and they made it just as filthy as it was the night before. And you're frustrated and you start to clean. You think to yourself, maybe I can figure out where this is coming from. So you walk upstream and just over the next hill, you find a huge trash dump. You begin to realize that you could sit there every single day and clean up that creek. And every day it's still going to be filthy until the moment you deal with what's at the source. Much like the heart of mankind. You see, the reality is many of us have allowed so much junk within our lives that the source is filthy now. Our heart has become filthy. Jesus Christ came to take that which was broken and make it whole. That which was filthy and make it clean. And it is only the blood of Jesus Christ that can truly make us clean again. The source, our hearts, needs to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then all the other stuff, it'll fix itself. It doesn't mean life's going to be easy, but I will guarantee you when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, when you truly experience His love in your heart, your perspective changes. I want you to understand today that this Christmas story is so much more than just a story. It is God revealing His love to you. He shows up in your workplaces, he desires to. He shows up in your homes, he desires to. He shows up in the world. When we look at all the brokenness in our world, we need him to show up. But it has to begin with him showing up in your heart. I'm going ask you, if you would, just bow your heads with me for a moment. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we recognize that you are are the only one that can make things right in us. Lord, you have displayed your love to us in so many different ways and you continually show up and you take care of needs in our lives and you meet us where we are in all the brokenness, all the ways that we know we've blown it, we know we failed you, yet you still love us and to us that is almost incomprehensible. But Lord, we come before you today and we ask you to show up in us. Oh, we want to see you in the workplace. We want to see you in the home. But more than anything, right now, we need you in us. I pray that you would go to the source, go to our hearts right now, and that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, give us a heart for you. And then, Lord, as you cleanse us, I pray that you would use us in such a mighty way that nobody could take credit for it except to say that you are the one who is doing the work in us so that all of a sudden our workplaces would be transformed, our homes would be transformed, our world would be transformed. Lord, I pray today that you will allow this Christmas to truly be about your love revealed in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. At this time, what we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of a shift. And first of all, uh, I want you guys to know this is a great privilege for us. If you are going to be a part of the baptism stuff, now would be the time for you guys to go get prepared or do whatever y'all need to do. Uh, there are actually, uh, the children are going to come over from the, uh, uh, the children's ministry. Uh, part of that is because of the fact that there are, uh, uh, we have one child who is going to be baptized this morning, and then we also have an adult who's going to be baptized Uh, It is a privilege for us to be able to baptize, to celebrate the work that God has done in individuals' lives. Uh, Some would say, well, what is the purpose of baptism? Why do we do this sort of thing? And I want to be able to share with you just a glimpse of what baptism is about. We read this past Wednesday night in Acts, uh, I believe it's in chapter 9, where you have the story of uh, Philip who had gone to Samaria. Samaria. Uh, Philip was there preaching, he was doing great things, and all of a sudden, the Lord sends him out on a desert road that seems so unusual. I mean, he had all these people in Samaria, why would God be sending him out there? And really what was taking place was God was sending him out to the desert road to be with one particular man. He is known as the Ethiopian eunuch, and as he is riding down the road in his chariot Philip walks up and he hears him reading from the scrolls and he says do you understand what you're reading and he's reading a passage from Isaiah and of course the Ethiopian eunuch says well how can anybody understand this and Philip would then begin to teach him from the point where he was reading and take him all through the story of Jesus Christ well apparently somewhere along the way they talked about baptism. And the Ethiopian eunuch looks and he sees a small body of water and he says, what is there to keep me from being baptized right now? Philip's response is, if only you would believe you can be baptized. I want you to understand that there is no magical power in the water that's used in baptism. This particular body of water that Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch got to was just an ordinary body of water. Probably not even a very large body of water just because of where they were. But it was just water. The water back there, although it splashes and you hear it throughout the service, there's nothing unusual about that water except that it's warm. I'm very grateful for that. There's nothing unusual about it because that does nothing to save a man from his sins. The reason we are baptized is not so that individuals might come to Christ. We are baptized as a testimony to what God has already done in our hearts. This Ethiopian eunuch apparently had already reached a point where his life belonged to Jesus Christ. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward work of grace. There are two individuals who are going to be baptized this morning. And as they are baptized, they are simply giving testimony to the fact that God has cleansed them from their sins. And we, as the body of Christ, get to rejoice with them. We're going to do this in two different ways this morning. Uh, One individual has chosen to be sprinkled with water. The Wesleyan Church allows for different modes of baptism. Uh, One is going to be sprinkled, one is going to be dunked. But I want to challenge you as the body of Christ, regardless of which way they are baptized, to help them out today. The Bible tells us that any time an individual repents of their sins, that there is great rejoicing in heaven over that sinner who has come to Christ. I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I didn't hear any angels, but I believe that they rejoiced. Well, I want you today to help them get a glimpse of what it must have been like. When an individual is baptized, you ought to rejoice and celebrate more than you ever have before. I know there are some Clemson fans around here. You celebrate and rejoice over what good things are happening with them, but you also know there'll come a day that that game isn't going to matter a bit, but the soul that is saved matters. So I'm going to challenge you today to rejoice. The moment an individual is baptized, I want you to give them a glimpse of what heaven is like. But I also want to ask you to do one other thing. There are two individuals. I want you to pray for each one of those individuals constantly. They have made a choice to walk in a way that would honor Jesus Christ. They have made a choice to respond to his grace, to embrace it, and to now walk as children of God. But they need to know that they are not alone. So you, as the body of Christ, I invite you, I encourage you to pray for them. I'm going to ask Daly to come, and she is going to sing this morning. And as she does, I'm going to go and get ready for the baptism, and I'll be right back out to do that. All right, we have two individuals that we are going to be able to baptize. And the first one, we're going to ask Julianne if she would come up. Julianne Keaton uh, she has grown up in this church and she has uh, obviously been an incredible blessing to the body of Christ and she will continue to be so. Uh, Julianne, we've already talked, but I'm going to ask you the same questions that I asked you the other night. And remember the first two you have to say yes to. The second one you can say no if you want. First of all, have you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins? Yes. And do you plan to live for him for the rest of your life? Yes. And is there anything else that you would like to share? Okay, that's all right, sweetheart. I want you to know before we pray over you that I am really proud of you, and I'm excited to be able to have this opportunity to do this because I know God's going to do great things in your life. So I want you to know we're praying for you too, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity right now to be able to come before you and celebrate the work that you have already done in Julianne's life. Oh, we know that you are a saving God, and it is your desire above all else that all people would come to a point of repentance so that we can spend eternity with you. Today we celebrate the fact that Julianne has given her heart to you, and I pray now that your hand of blessing would be upon her. I pray that you would anoint her that every moment of her life would be ordered by you, I pray that you would help her to grow into the woman of God that you've called her to be, and I pray that as she does grow, that you would move in such a mighty way that nobody could take credit for what takes place except you. Lord, I thank you for who she is. I pray today for her family. I pray that you would encourage them, that you would bless them, and help them to be the examples that you need them to be. Lord, I pray specifically for Jenny and for Mike. And I ask that you would equip them as the people that you have placed in Julianne's life to be that role model so that she would always know what it is to be a woman of God. And now, in the name of Jesus Christ, we baptize you, Julianne Keaton, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. a little wet, isn't it? Sorry. All right. uh, Now we're going to do the same thing with Susan Rogers and hopefully the other microphone will pick up because I don't think they want me to take this one into the baptistry with me. Now many of you know Susan Rogers as well. She has been a part of the church for a very long time and she has been a blessing to so many folks over the years and uh, we are so grateful. You just heard the same questions that I asked Julianne. I'm going to ask you the same same ones. And uh, first of all, have you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins? Yes. Do you plan to live for him for the rest of your life? Yes. Is there anything else you would like to share this morning? No. No? I'm going to tell you the same thing I told her. We are going to be praying for you. We love you. We believe that God has already done great things in you. And we believe he's going to do even more very grateful to be a part of this today. Thank you. So you're welcome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your grace. We thank you for the goodness that you have shown in reaching out to us in the midst of our sin. Thank you for Susan and the work that you have already begun to do in her. We know that he who began a good work in us is faithful to carry it on to completion. So we pray that you would continue to do the cleansing and healing work in Susan's life, that she would be the woman of God you've called her to be. But we know today that it is only by your grace that we stand before you. And today we celebrate the fact that Susan can come boldly before your throne because of your grace. But I pray today that you would fill her, that you would work in her in a mighty way. She has children and grandchildren that look up to her. Help her to live up to the example that you've called her to live up to. But I pray that you would be honored every moment of her life in the way that she lives. Susan, you want to pinch your nose? Yeah. Susan Rogers, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to thank you for being a part of this service today. Some of you came just because you have family members that were being baptized. And I celebrate with you on this occasion. I want to encourage you, especially as you go through this next week, to remember that this season is all about Christ. Much like these baptisms, it's all about Christ. And I want to encourage you as well. If you don't have a church home, come back here next week. We would love to have you guys again. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace with the blessing of Christ.